Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, I want to welcome you this morning. Thank you for being here on this very cold morning. Um, it's good to be together to hear God's word. We believe it's going to be good, even though sometimes it feels really heavy. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. This is a kind of sobering, heavy teaching, but it's going to bring, I think, some clarity to our understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel produces in us. So I've already said it's, it's Christ the King Sunday. And according to her wisdom, the church gives us this last extended teaching, the last extended teaching in Matthew for the occasion. And so it falls on me, it is my duty, I'm just the messenger, to bring you out of the world of, of turkey and, and cranberry, cranberry sauce and Christmas trees and pies and into this somewhat sobering word um, about sheep and about goats and about final judgment. It's not an easy word, but again, it's a, it's a clarifying Word. And my aim this morning is just to look at three things that I think this teaching from Jesus does really clarify. And the first thing it clarifies is just the gospel. What is it? And how is it different from what it produces? Now, when we read this text very clearly, a lot of us start to feel uncomfortable because we feel like, is, is Jesus saying that if we feed and clothe the poor and we visit the sick and those in prison, we earn the kingdom? And then if we don't, we don't. And how does that seemingly straightforward reading square with Ephesians 2? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. How do these two emphases go together? Well, that is, that's the discipline of biblical theology. Um, you can define biblical theology by saying, we're trying to bring a unity of thought to a diversity of emphases in the Scripture. So classically, there's, a, there's Paul's faith not by works. And there's James, faith without works is dead. So we look at these two and we think, how do, we, how do these sit alongside one another? That's the work of biblical theology, and that's what we're going to do a little bit right now. So we have to be mindful of two errors here as we approach this text. The ancient church father Tertullian supposedly put it this way. He said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. What errors was he talking about? Well, on the one hand, we have the error of religionism or legalism or moralism. On the other side, the error of irreligion or anything goes relativism. So religious legalistic moralism is basically our holiness, our performance, our good deeds, our moral goodness saves us. That's wrong. Irreligious, anything goes relativism equates acceptance and love and the divine. And, and how, however we live is just sort of up to us. That's also wrong. The essential problem with both of these errors, I want to say, is that the focus is on us. That they place the emphasis on what we do, not on what God has done. The gospel is not actually about us. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. It's news. It's an announcement. And as it relates to us, it's not a matter of degrees. As if we are kind of in on the gospel or we're kind of in on Christ to the degree that we've served the poor this week or done our quiet time or given some of our money. No, 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 no. We are either born again by the Holy Spirit or we are not. We are either in Christ or we are not. It's that simple. Now, the famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used this diagnostic question to determine where someone kind of was spiritually. He would ask them, are you ready to say now that you are a Christian? 
And people would often respond with something like, I don't feel like I'm good enough, to be honest with you. Or maybe in light of this reading, I don't think I serve the poor enough. I don't think I do X, Y, Z enough. And to such an answer, Martin Lloyd-Jones would respond. He said, I knew at once that if they answered this way, that they, their idea is still that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. And that sounds very modest, but it is a lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. It sounds like bad news, but it's good news. You will never be good enough. You cannot be good enough. The essence of Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. He is good enough and I am in him. That's the gospel. Not that we're good enough, but he is and we are in him. And so beware, don't let the gospel get crucified by the lie of legalism. If I could just work hard enough, then I'd be good enough. No, no, no. You are not good enough, and you will never be good enough, but Christ is, and you are in him. Okay, so that's legalism. On the other hand, we have this other emphasis. Don't let the gospel get crucified by the lie of relativism. In Martin Luther's words, we are saved by faith alone. It is, it's faith alone that unites us with Christ. It's just trusting him, that simple, receiving his grace, repenting of our sins. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. Faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. Or in John Calvin's words, at the tree, the tree lives out this interconnected difference, interconnected difference between its fruits and its roots. So the Christian life lives out this interconnected difference between faith and works. And that's James' emphasis, if you read James. Faith without works is dead because these things are interconnected just as the roots of a healthy tree bear healthy fruit. Making sense? Okay, so back to the teaching of Jesus. If this teaching is read as works save you, like, serve the poor enough and you're saved, then it's contradicting Paul. And that's bad biblical theology. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Instead, we ought to read this teaching as emphasizing what James goes on to emphasize. Faith is meant to come alive with loving action. And if it doesn't, you've got to question the roots. Is there faith? Is there a relationship with Jesus? Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. Good trees cannot bear bad fruit, nor can bad trees bear good fruit. So it's a matter of roots. Now, a lot of this hinges on how we read the, the four, F-O-R, in verses 35 and 42 of this teaching. So when Jesus says in 35, the king will say to those that is right, come, you are blessed by my father, for I was hungry and you fed me. Or in verse 41, he'll say to those that is left, you depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. What, what does the for there mean? Consider this. You can say that it has rained for the atmospheric conditions were right for rain. And if you are saying for in that sense, you're sort of giving a, a reason for the rain. This is not how the for is being used here. Instead, you could say it has rained for the streets are wet. Here you're giving the evidence for the fact that it has rained. So that's the way Jesus is using for here. <laughs> Come, inherit the kingdom, for I was hungry and you fed me. He's citing the evidence of a changed life of the good roots that actually exist to give life to, uh, to this life, to, give, um, to produce good fruit. So a lot hinges on the way we interpret that for. Now, in the second sense, which I've just argued, we see that the sheep and the goats teaching is that the good fruit produces healthy, sorry, good roots produce healthy fruit. What is the root? Here's the last thing I want to say about it so I can move on to the way we're actually transformed. The root is this. Hear this so clearly. The root is faith in Christ union with him, okay? You're in 
or you're not. You know him or you don't. It's not a matter of degrees. So one practical outworking of this, the application of this teaching cannot be try harder to make yourself love the poor. You can staple healthy roses to a dying rose bush. Ever tried that? That would be weird, but you could. <clears throat> you could staple healthy roses to a dying rose bush, make it look good for a few days. You can go out and work really hard to serve the poor, but it's not going to work long term. You need to go after the roots, and the root is Christ. Now, a lack of love in your life, a lack of love for the others around you, including the least of these, it's going to be addressed actually by apprehending that you were spiritually poor, that you were imprisoned in sin, that you were naked, and that Christ in love has come to you, and he's fed you, and he's freed you, and he has clothed you. And as you apprehend that, that produces the healthy roots, which produces the healthy fruit. Are you tracking with me? Okay. All right, so we've clarified what the gospel is and talked a little bit about what it produces. Let's look at the second point. What, let's let this teaching clarify what is it that the gospel is actually meant to produce in us if we have healthy roots. Now, I'll just say it very explicitly. The gospel is meant to transform us and our character. Now, let's let the text breathe a minute again. With his last extended teaching in Matthew, what does Jesus do? He points his church, his disciples, to the hungry so the, to the naked, to the stranger, to the sick, to those in prison. And I just, how desperately I wish to see the church in America turn away from every other metric and to take Jesus seriously here. What would that look like? Please hear this. Authentic Christianity is always marked by a love for the least of these. If it's not, it might call itself Christian, but it isn't. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. Christ loves the least of these. And I might appropriate Tertullian's crucifixion metaphor for today. The church's call to love is often crucified between two errors. On the one hand, there's the fundamentalist impulse. Good fruit looks like taking the nation back for God winning the moral high ground, retaining our individual freedoms and rights, and maybe being a little insensitive to people who disagree with us along the way. On the other hand, there's the progressive impulse. Good fruit, the call of the church is, is to kind of a quasi-Christian do-goodism, you know, supporting governmental efforts to enact a modern sense of, of justice and morality, toning down Jesus for a modern sensibility. You know, it looks like Matthew 25, but without the fire and the judgment stuff. And Christ calls us to a third way. And I think actually this third way takes a lot of what's best in both of these impulses, but ultimately calling us out of them. So, for example, with a fundamentalist tendency, we're to actually to keep Christ unapologetically in the center of our, of our, of our way of life and of our living and of our, of our ethic and of our loving people. You know, Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. He's pulling that right out of Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man all power and authority. So this is not a vague divine love. This is not a quasi-spiritual force. This is a person, Jesus, the King of Kings. And so our ethic is actually lived out in commitment to, in relationship with Jesus, looking at his life and his resurrection and his current reigning as King. But this is lived out in a cruciform way. And by that I mean by laying down rights, by serving others, by fidelity to Christ, even over country, if need be. 
Okay, so he also retains much of what's good about the progressive tendency. Jesus is calling us, his disciples, to consider and care for those on the margins. Is he not? And to work for equity and for justice and to think carefully about what the minority experience is like and not just our experience, but not necessarily through the state. You know, look, look how personal and relational it is. He doesn't say, you gave your money to X and Y Z program and they fed me. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. He doesn't say, I was naked and you gave your clothes to Salvation Army and they clothed me. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. Now stay with me for a minute. I'm going to get a little bit Catholic. Is that okay? Brace yourselves. Uh, 1930, Pope Pius wrote a letter to the Catholic Church that laid out the basic principle of all Catholic social teaching. And it's called the principle of subsidiarity. The principle of subsidiarity. Now, this principle is basically that in political and in economic spheres, um, you ought always to preference what is most local. Like, so the most local level of authority and operation. So better for, like, a family to do it, you know, on their street than the government in Washington to come and tell that street how to do it. Does that make sense? So have you seen, um, like, this, like, shop local bumper sticker around? Maybe you have one. Well, that's actually Pope Pius, 1931. That was his letter to the Catholic Church. There's a preference for the local. So do you see this principle of subsidiarity in Christ's teaching here? You know, in Christ's day, a prisoner was, was, was dependent completely on their family and friends. There was no mess hall in the prison back then. Family and friends had to come and tend and feed their family and their friends who were in prison or they would die. And so the, the Bible doesn't give us an exact answer to the question of how much or how little the government should or should not intervene in a lot of situations. And so that's why you all are free to discuss and to discern and to debate that. And we can totally disagree on that. But we can't disagree on this. Christ, our King, gives us a clear vision that we as individuals are to draw near and love the poor and the least of these in our proximity. That's That's clear. And if only we would put as much energy into that as we did some other things. Wow, the church would be in good shape. Now, one thing that I think stops us, stops me at times, is like we just don't know how. We're, we're a little overwhelmed. The need is really great, is it not? I mean, I, am I called to be best friends with every beggar on the street in Denver? Well, again, the principle of subsidiarity then gives way, well, it's complemented really by this principle of proximity, um, which is just a fancy way of saying that the nearer the neighbor the greater the responsibility. And so I'd encourage you to think through the, the, the principle of proximity. First, three levels I'm going to propose. First, you're called to love the poor in your own family. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's my family. It doesn't really count. No, it does count. It really does. So the least of these in your family are your children, your elders, the sick, the hurting. You've been placed in a family and your call is to love them. And that that is, when you love the children, your elders, the sick, the hurting, those without resources in your own family, you're loving Jesus. All right, a second level. You're called to love the poor in your own church family. The emphasis of the New Testament, yes, we're called to love the world, but even first, we're called to love one another. They will know we are Christians by how we love one another. So, in our midst, children, those who are serving downstairs right now, taking care of our children, are loving Christ. They're loving the least of these in our midst. Our elders, we're to respect them and love them and take care of them. The widows, the sick, the hurting, those with mental or physical or emotional challenges, those without resources here in our body, we are to take care of. Because as we do, we are loving Jesus. And third, you're called to love the poor in your neighborhood. And this is where most of us go immediately. 
the closer, the greater the responsibility. So maybe start literally next door. Do you know your neighbors? Uh, It is not your job to solve poverty in Denver or in America, but you can shovel the driveway of your elderly widow neighbor on your block. Maybe you have the margin to come serve at Mean Street. That's in our neighborhood and something we do as a church. Um, You know, prayer also counts. (laughs) You can pray for those on your neighborhood, for your neighbors, and for the least of these around you. So Jesus said it plainly. He said the first and greatest commandment is to love God and love who? Your neighbor. And neighbor literally means the next one, the nearest one. And that's Christ's vision of a life full of good fruit. It's not the means by, that's not the thing that saves you. It's the kind of life that his love gives way to. That's his vision for his church. Now, I want to say undergirding all this is a truth that we can't miss. And it's, I've already said it, Christ radically identifies with the least of these. Why is that? The incarnation, what is it? Considered from the view of heaven, you and I are impoverished. God came near. God came near us. Every single one of us in this room is broken. Every single one of us in this room is needy. And yet God drew near to us in Christ. To us who are hungry, to us who are thirsty, to us who are naked, thus who are imprisoned, he serves us a feast. He clothes us. These robes are meant to remind us that Christ clothes us in his righteousness and he sets us free from our sins. So he's on the side of the poor. He's on our side. And it's only when you start to recognize, I myself am the poor and Christ has loved me that you then long to go and love the poor. He's present in the poor because he's present with us. In Gerard Manley Hopkins' words, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, For King, as as Kingfishers Catch Fire, I believe is the title, if you want to go reflect on it. Um, You know, the only way we can cross Jesus really in the end is to say, no thanks, I'm rich, I'm good, I don't need your mercy. But when we love the poor, we love Christ. We love the ones he loves. We love our neighbors. We even love ourselves. And this is the love that ought to define Christ's church. It ought to define us. When one priest asked Mother Teresa how she kept going and kind of what motivated her her mission, she asked him to put his hand out on the table. And she took his hand and she touched his fingers one by one. And she quoted Matthew 25, 40. She said, you did it to me. Christ is lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his. He's in the poor. He's with the poor. All right, so we've clarified what the gospel is, what it produces in us, namely a sacrificial love for the least of these, our children, our elders, the sick, the hurting, those without resources around us. And finally, what I want to say is, if this teaching wasn't already challenging enough, I'm the messenger. He clarifies judgment, at least one thing about judgment. And namely, it clarifies that you and I are today becoming what we will be forever. You know, for all the uncomfortable questions that this teaching raises, and it does raise them, we know this with at least certainty. You and I will be held accountable for how we lived. There is accountability in the end. And this isn't arbitrary. It's rooted in this. You know, in, in, in verse 34, the sheep, they're given the kingdom. And in verse 41, the goats are sent to the fire. The kingdom is a place where those who are on a trajectory of love today will experience a community of love tomorrow. They're being fitted for it now. And the fire is a place where those who are on a trajectory of self-absorption today have themselves eternally. 
In that sense, they have what they've always wanted themselves. You're becoming a certain kind of person today, and that actually matters for tomorrow. In the city of God, Augustine divides mankind into two cities, two kingdoms. He says, there's the city of God. And the city of God is all those who love God above all things, and there's the city of the world, all those who love themselves or, or something in the world as their God. So a city, says Augustine, is defined by its loves. So what do you love? You are currently a citizen of one or the other, or you're currently sort of investing and building one or the other. Either you're living in and you're laboring in and you're contributing to and you're building up the city of the world, which is a city defined by self-love and consequently war and greed and violence and exploitation, or you're living in and laboring in and contributing to and building up the city of God, a city defined by, as we've seen, love for the least of these, a sacrificial love for your neighbors. Which city do you want to live in, really? Which city do you love? The church is meant to be an outpost for the city of God, and so often she has failed. It's heartbreaking. Yes, the church is imperfect, but the church is meant to be an outpost of the city of God, a community, a city within the city, living in love for one another and for the least in our midst and in our city. That's what we're called to be. And our Christian hope, then, is not an altogether new life in heaven, like suddenly with death, like we become someone completely different than who we, no, no. It's a, it's, it's a new chapter in the same life you are already living. In other words, you will be the same person in life and in death. You will be actually more fully what you are now. Peter Kreeft likens it to an eternal, um, likens eternal life to like a, a two-dimensional triangle on a paper being turned into a three-dimensional pyramid. Because it's sort of like, it's the same but different. It's like the same but enhanced. So if you are by faith now, if you are united with Christ, and you've said, Lord, I do actually need you. Please forgive me for my sins. I long to follow you. You're, you're united with him. You are God's imperfect friend during your time on earth. You're slowly but surely learning to love the least of these. You will be his perfect friend forever in the new creation, where the least of these are no more. Everyone has an abundance. But if instead you are his enemy on earth now, I don't need you, I'm rich, I'm good, and you die without repenting of your sins, you will be his enemy in the life to come. You will have the life you've always wanted, a life without him. And that's hell. And we see it already taking shape on earth. Hell is a continuation of this self-centered, egotistical, exploitative city of man. Lewis's classic, The Great Divorce, lays this out imaginatively. It's a great book to reflect on if this is an area and it probably is, like most of us, that wrestles with judgment in heaven and hell, reflect on the great divorce. We are slowly being fitted to one city or the other so that when judgment day comes, you will get what you've always wanted and been prepared for. And I always like to say, you know, especially when we talk about judgment, if you are not in Christ and if you haven't trusted him, there's no time like the present, like today. Second uh, Peter 3, 9, I love the message translation. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is restraining himself today on account of you, holding back the end, judgment, because he doesn't want anyone lost. That's his heart. He doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. That time is now. It is God's will that none should perish. Did you notice that the kingdom is prepared for who? For you. The fire isn't prepared for you. He doesn't want anyone to go into the fire. That's for the devil and his, and his demons. And it, no, he wants, he wants to give you the kingdom. So yes, this teaching is sobering, but don't miss the joy of that. 
The heart of God is to give you the kingdom defined by this selfless love from top to bottom. Isn't that a kingdom you want to live in? That's a kingdom he's calling us to make present today. I want to read 1 John 4, 7, which really just reframes everything I've said and summarizes it beautifully. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, not that we earned it, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen? Lord, help us to take this kind of difficult, challenging word from you and to live it out. Give us your grace for the ways we, we don't. Um, but teach us gradually, slowly, to be a community of people to, who truly see and step out and love towards the least of those, the least of these around us, as, as you do, and in doing so to love you and to honor you. We thank you, Christ, for being our king, for being a king who leads us to, to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.